For the last seven years, I have continued to build the narrative globally for what cannabis can be in food and beverage. Most people perceive it to be gummies, brownies, and cookies. And I'm telling you that I make gummies, brownies, and cookies. My brownies have avocado. My cookies have three ingredients. And, you know, like my gummies are vegan and gluten-free and dairy-free and refined sugar-free. So I came to cannabis at a very young age, but professionally realized that a lot of people need help and like me can find their health through food, which cannabis is. Cannabis is just another great ingredient that I use. This is the Cannabis Enigma, cutting through the smoke to have informed, serious conversations for regular people. Hi, I'm Milana Goldberg. And I'm Dr. Cody Peterson. And today, Cody, we get to talk about two of our favorite topics, cannabis and food. Those are almost the same topic in my mind. <laughs> almost. Do you consume cannabis or food? <laughs> uh, is there all of the above? Yes, there is. <laughs> there definitely is. I think what's cool about cannabis and food is cannabis is food. In fact, one of the earliest uses of cannabis was for its seeds to eat. Far before humans figured out that you could smoke cannabis, they figured out that you could you could consume its seeds and use its fiber. Yeah, far before humans figured out how to order pizza. <laughs> you know, I think I think now with the advent of Uber Eats, you know, we're not limited to pizza delivery anymore. Okay, don't put us in that box, that pizza box. Well, not everyone has Uber Eats, Cody. Uh, I guess I'm privileged. You are indeed in many ways. So content about cannabis and cooking has been really popular on the Kenigma at the moment. We've noticed an increased interest in recipes, in kind of how-tos about decarboxylation, about different devices that are used in the cannabis kitchen. So definitely a growing kind of interest topic. So this is why we decided to invite Chef Jordan Wagman onto the show. And this was another one of these interviews where Cody and I were fighting about who got to interview him. So we decided to interview him together. Tell us a bit about Jordan, Cody. Well, you'll hear in the interview that, that I met Jordan digitally, as many of my cannabis connections started. And what's interesting is, is he was touting his, his favorite recipe. And again, you'll hear this in the, in the episode. It was fruit leather. And everyone <laughs> was raving about the fruit leather. But I had to comment that, you know, the animal hide made from fruit doesn't really like, it doesn't really sound appeasing to me. And he disagreed and we, we had it out around that. And I asked if it was tanned, you know, before you ate it or, or not. But the point is, is we, we laughed at each other. And interestingly enough, six months later, we find ourselves, you know, in the same room as Alana here talking about how Jordan, you know, can come on the podcast and, and how he can even maybe help work with us on some recipes and, you know, work with the Kenigma. Yeah, so Jordan's going to be helping us to beef up our recipe section, pun intended. And I think one of the things that's really great about Jordan's story, and again, we're not going to do too many that. spoilers here. <laughs> yeah, welcome. <laughs> Cody's been working all night. So if he says anything <laughs> weird, you know, just ignore it. Oh, night shift. Yeah, yeah. So Jordan, like so many other people that are kind of pushing forward in the cannabis industry, has his own story with the plant and about how he realized that it was helping with his psoriasis from a very young age. So that's, you know, a, a lot of the kind of passion behind his work. And he talks about that in the interview. And we're hoping that Jordan's going to make it over to Israel at some point this year to do a 14 course cannabis infused meal for the Kenigma team as well. 
I'm going to have to make the trip to Israel specifically for that day. But seriously, Jordan has been really fun to talk to. He's, he's really a genuine person who is super excited to, to share his knowledge about cannabis and food with the world. And, you know, he's really got this beautiful story about healing with cannabis as so many people do. So, you know, check out the interview and you will get to learn more about Jordan. And then obviously if you want to read more about his content and things, you can always find his name on the Conigma. Absolutely. And we'll pop that in the show notes for you as well. We're going to go straight to the interview now and stick around after the interview. We've got our regulation segment with our co-producers at Americans for Safe Access. So yeah, remember to have a listen. All right, let's talk about food and cannabis. Who's up for it? These are two of my favorite things, usually one before the other, but if you can put them together, I'm down for that as well. One before the other, and then the other, and then the other, and then back and forth, that sort of thing? Yeah, it's like a, it's like a teeter-totter. <laughs> <laughs> what about you, Jordan? I'm curious which comes before which. I'm, I'm just, I'm not sure, is it the cannabis before the food or the food before the cannabis? I'm uncertain. It's a chicken before the egg sort of thing. Yeah, uh, welcome, to, <laughs> welcome to the podcast, uh, Chef Jordan Wagman. He is a, a cannabis and food expert in one, and we're, we're excited to have him on the podcast. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. All right. So, Jordan, I'd love it if we could just start off hearing your story. How did you end up being a cannabis chef? Yeah, I mean, it's funny. You know, I, I talk about the quote-unquote cannabis chef often which I don't think I am. And I'll sort of, you know, I'll start here that, you know, I, I was diagnosed with psoriasis at the age of 12. I call it the Corey Hart ears, you know, I wear my sunglasses at night. And so, you know, I had spiked hair, just like Corey Hart. And I woke up one day at my friend's house and I woke up with basically three huge patches of psoriasis on my hair. And because I had spiked hair, two of these patches were positioned right, right at the front of my scalp and all the hair clumped together to form what looked like basically two horns coming out of my head, which was, you know, apropos, seeing as though my father thought I was a little bit of a, a devil's child, which I was. But after that, you know, finding psoriasis and being diagnosed, every decision I made in my life revolved around my health, specifically my skin. When I wrote every high school exam in the hospital, I ended up spending a year and a half of my life sleeping in, in a tent at the Dead Sea in Israel. And ultimately finding what I call the first piece to my health puzzle, which was the sunshine. The sun reduced my skin production and allowed me to maintain relative health until I got on the plane, went back to Toronto, got off the plane, and psoriasis started to come back. So, you know, after spending a lot of time in Israel and finding that, you know, first piece, I subsequently sought, you know, the sunshine wherever I was. So every vacation I took was always, you know, to an island or to sunshine and ultimately moved to Florida to go to culinary school in California. And believe it or not, it's sunny every day in Colorado, even though it's cold sometimes. So I, I was always seeking out the sunshine, thinking that it was the only way to heal myself. The parallel is... While I was, you know, after my diagnoses, what I found at a very young age and was labeled stoner, pothead, and burnout was that 
I smoked pot every day since I was 12 because it allowed me to go to sleep. I'd go for psoriasis treatments. I'd get burnt in UVB, whatever it was. I'd wake up in the middle of the night in a psoriasis flare and smoking cannabis allowed me to go to sleep. So I never fully appreciated at a young age that cannabis was being used for health and wellness. I just assumed, as I say often, it was because I love the Grateful Dead, played guitar and had a ponytail. Fast forward to seven years ago, having had, you know, a lifetime in culinary and hospitality and, you know, being very involved in food on a daily basis, I was ready to make holistic changes to my diet and sought the help of a naturopath. And from this one meeting, I removed gluten, dairy and refined sugar from my diet and began consuming cannabis. Within 60 days, I lost 30 pounds and my psoriasis improved dramatically and almost went away. For the last seven years, I have continued to build the narrative globally for what cannabis can be in food and beverage. Most people perceive it to be gummies, brownies, and cookies. And I'm telling you that I make gummies, brownies, and cookies. My brownies have avocado. My cookies have three ingredients. And, you know, like my gummies are vegan and gluten-free and dairy-free and refined sugar-free. So I came to cannabis at a very young age, but professionally realized that a lot of people need help and, like me, can find their health through food, which cannabis is. Cannabis is just another great ingredient that I use. Wow, Jordan, you shared a lot about your journey here. And it sounds like, you know, I think it's interesting that that you've been battling psoriasis, you know, with different tools through your life, eventually finding or maybe leaning on cannabis as a crutch. And now what you've done is you've taken food and diet and you've elevated your endocannabinoid system, continue to use cannabis medicinally. And it sounds like you're finding some tremendous success. Continued health benefits, no question about it. You know, I, I think for me, and I always talk about, you know, I, I learned that we, the phrase, we are an end of one from Dr. Deb Kimless. You know, we are, we're an end of one. And so for me, I know that food and cannabis works to help to keep my inflammation in check. But I'll be honest, it's really the removal of the refined sugar, I believe, again, we're an end of one, but I believe that the removal of refined sugar has impacted my body as much as the benefits of cannabis, to be honest. Well, I mean, certainly that's what we want from you uh, is, is honesty. And I think, you know, there's a, there's a lot of dietary changes that we could look to make and we've had gone through a lot of diets, but there's no doubt that sugar intake has increased in recent times. And so, and cannabis too, like when we look at cannabis edibles, for example, these are very sugar rich products and whether that's a problem or whether they shouldn't be there, I'm obviously a proponent of, of allowing all products to exist in the consumer marketplace. But I do think that we're underserving the health conscious consumer right now in the cannabis edible space. I agree with you. And balance is important. You know, I, I use my Oreo cookie example sometimes to, to sort of highlight balance. A good friend of mine growing up wasn't allowed to eat Oreos for whatever reason. We'd go to summer camp and his duffel bag would be filled with Oreos because we weren't allowed food. He'd take them out. He'd take them to the, you know, to the woods. He'd dig this hole, you know, he'd dig this hole and he'd bury the Oreos in the duffel bag so that he had this stash all summer long. Why? Because throughout the year, he wasn't allowed to have it. I don't forbid my children from having anything. We don't have soda in the house. We don't have 
crunchy bars or, you know, or, or sugar cereals in the house. Do I know my kids eat McDonald's? Of course I do. But life is about balance. The issue I have in the edible space, food and beverage, let's just, you know, blanket it, food and beverage, is there's no balance. So it's all the same products. If you go and you take a look at the gummies, for example, that are available, what differentiates one from the next? Maybe it's a flavor, flavor. profile. Maybe it's the mold they use, right? Maybe some are big, maybe some are small, maybe some are stars, ponies, whatever the case may be, shapes and sizes. But the health benefits, there's no differentiation with ingredients. So they're all, it's the same. Refined sugar, and here's sort of, the, the premise that I build all of my culinary experiences on. Cannabis combined with refined sugar. When you eat that gummy, you're the science guy, so you'll correct me, but there's no doctor that I've spoken with and discussed this at length that has argued the, you know, the validity of this theory. The refined right. sugar wants to be absorbed to in your body before the cannabis. Your body loves sugar. Now don't put sugar in that cannabis food stuff. What is your body going to absorb? Inevitably, it makes your cannabis much more bioavailable if you're pairing it with other ingredients that are not refined sugar. So when people come from fit for 15 Particularly courses, fats, right? 100%. Right. But, but if, when people come for 15 course infused experiences with me, they come in and they're all heroes. Everyone's a hero. I eat 100 milligrams. I eat 150. And I say, good for you. You're going to come in and you're going to have the experience the way that I curate it, which is over 15 courses. You may have maximum, maximum 20 milligrams of THC. But I'm combining it with tons of terpenes, tons of raw flour, tons of minor cannabinoids to create that whole flour experience, which we call that entourage effect. And every single person, no matter who you are, your experience in cannabis, new, old, experience, whatever the case may be, every person leaves saying the same thing. This was the most incredible food experience I've ever had because they appreciate that they had something that they've never experienced before because all food is so filled with sugar and other junk. So wow. that's my soapbox. How do I get a ticket? Like, sign me up for that 15 course meal. What were you going to say, Alana? Well, yeah, I, I was just going to say, I want to get you, you know, on the air agreeing to do this 15 course meal next time we come to Israel for the team. I know you actually already agreed the last time we spoke. I've already I agreed. I, I already <laughs> told my family, listen, I don't know when, but just expect that I may ask you to pick me up from the airport. And like 17 of them were like, no problem. So, okay, very good. Wait. So I'm glad we have that settled. I would love it, Jordan, <laughs> if we can kind of jump into talking about some tips for people who are cooking at home. What are, you know, what are the basics? What do people need to know if they want to start experimenting with making their own edibles? I talk about something called a repeatable experience. And I want those, I think the biggest challenge that we have are, you know, newcomers to cannabis. How do we get them to understand the benefits, then have an experience, enjoy the experience, and then want that second experience? That's the goal, is getting them to the second experience. I'm going to take for granted they love the first experience. We're getting them here. Well, if they get to the second experience and it differs drastically from the first, 
They're gone. You're never getting them back. We need to create safer environments when we're cooking cannabis for clients, for anyone. Creating that repeatable experience is about creating homogenous mixtures. So what do I do? You can, of course, you can take your dropper with distillate and put a, you know, a dollop on it or, you know, whatever, a, a milliliter and there's 20 milligrams in that milliliter and you have 20 milligrams in there. Sure, you can individually dose your food stuff. Absolutely, you can. That's not cooking with cannabis. That's just adding cannabis to your food. Cooking with cannabis is different. Creating an ice cream mixture like a, let's talk sorbet, a blueberry sorbet mixture. Mm. I will bring blueberries and maple syrup to a boil, covered. As soon as the blueberry skins split and start to release all of those juices, guess what? It's done. You bring that down to room temperature. Why? Because if I don't have to, I don't want to infuse my cannabinoids into a very hot product. There's no reason to. I'm going to freeze this anyways. I bring it down to room temperature. I put it into a blender and I add my distillate. The reason I personally am adding a purchased distillate is because I know the exact potency to do decimal places of the cannabinoids per milliliter, whatever the unit of measure is. So again, I'll, I'll use the example. If I want to add 20 milligrams to this sorbet mixture, I add one milliliter, there's 20 milligrams in there, I puree agitate, agitate, the RPMs are high enough, creating this emulsification, which is combining two ingredients that don't normally mix, right? We're creating this homogenous, very smooth mixture. Think Caesar dressing, think mayonnaise. Those are emulsions, right? They're emulsifications. Then I'll put it into my ice cream mixture. And now I will simply take the yield, divide it by my portion size, and that is the quantity of or potency of cannabis per serving size. Per dose, right? And so really what, you're, what you're getting at is it's really important to make sure that all of your cannabis oil or product is well immersed. You know, just dropping it into, let's say, the red sauce on your pot kitchen is not going to work, is what you're telling no, me. No, it won't, because one spoonful will have no cannabinoids, one spoonful will have all the cannabinoids or some of the cannabinoids. You're always going to have a tolerance. Somebody gets the short always. straw, somebody gets the, the, the good exactly. straw. <laughs> Someone is left out. So let me let me summarize that by saying, the tip for a, anyone that's going to create food stuff in their kitchen is to purchase your cannabinoids. If you are not familiar with the decarboxylation process and you don't really have access to sending out your finished infusion to a lab to tell you the actual potency of that cannabinoid, you as a producer of product for a paying customer, and I'm speaking to professional chefs out there, you're being irresponsible. You're better off in your home environment or cooking for others to buy something where you know you you can appreciate the efficacy of that finished product. I mean, I can appreciate that. If you're serving other people, right? If you're serving other people, you want to know what dose you have. 
that makes complete sense to me, Jordan. What about for people who are, you know, living in a place where they can't just buy a tincture or a distillate so easily? Well, we had we had a conversation, Alana, Cody, and I, about a, an amazing feature that's coming out, and and uh, you know, I hope you, you don't mind me talking about it. Chef the Jeff the four twenty chef came out with this calculator many years ago, and people find it extremely useful. There's no question that there is a benefit to a calculator that can help you create or understand the potency of your cannabis. So that is the answer is you have to learn how to create these infusions yourself as a responsible manner that you can. Using a calculator, which you know, you're going to feature, will allow those people to create as close to a product that I'm subscribing to them on their own. So Yeah, I think that's kind of where we, we stand in this challenge market, right? Because there was so much stifling of knowledge and technology and development. We've got all these people who are producing cannabis, have long been infusing and are very comfortable infusing cannabis at home for themselves, right? And I think, you know, for those folks, we should still in- encourage them to do so. But I agree, particularly when you're dealing with, with a party or a group, individuals who aren't comfortable with cannabis, you want to be really, really important on that dose. And then this emulsification, this is super intriguing. You know, you see this with our gummies recipe on on the Kenigma, which is one of our popular ones. We use gelatin, but also soy lecithin, right? Or lecithin in general, it doesn't have to be soy, as, a, as an emulsifier, right? So this is an interesting thing. When you take water, right? Like, like as in gummies, and then you want it to blend with your cannabis oil, you actually need this, this in between this lecithin. And and I'm sure that that you use lecithin in your in your cooking, or I shouldn't say that what do you use in lieu of that as an emulsifier? Nothing. It's all technique. That's it's all culinary. So you're combining my signature sauce has two ingredients, cherry tomatoes and olive oil, the same premise with the blueberries applies. You take the two ingredients, you put them in a pot, you cover it. You wait until the skins split. They release all the water. So it was a dry mixture. And now ultimately what you're looking for is all the water will cover those tomatoes. You put them in something with high enough RPMs and you're suspending that water in the oil, right? And so you're creating that natural emulsification. So you can suspend them. Now, can you do that with a whisk? No. And so that's the point is that if someone doesn't have, when I say technique, Equipment comes into, you know, comes into play with technique. I just want to speak to one thing that you mentioned insofar as those that are creating those, those infusions on their own today, in truth, Cody, they're not the ones that I'm speaking to. The ones that I'm speaking to are the ones that are new to cannabis because the ones that are already creating, we're already in, we're already, we're the outliers. You know, we're not the norm. The norm are the people that are not in cannabis. Right. Most so the outliers. Exactly. So it's for those people that are creating their own infusions, have at it. It's working for them. I can't do that for clients. I feel more responsible. I think it's more responsible if I'm buying something. I'm more trying to appeal to those that are, you know, sitting at home. They're really confused as to whether cannabis is right for them or not. And in truth, you know, it's all about, as the three of us do on a daily basis, having these conversations to help remove the stigma. And it's a much easier conversation when you're talking to people about cannabis consumption over food than handing them a a package of zigzags and some flour and say, go roll a joint. No one's going to do that. 
it's a totally different experience too. And that's so important, right? The duration is longer. The come up is much slower, you know, and, and for some folks, uh, they find it much more in, enjoyable. And this has to do with their individual metabolism. We have articles on the Kinegma about this, why some individuals don't feel edibles or feel very little compared to others who feel them very intensely. And these can be genetic differences and all sorts of science fun. So if that's something that intrigues you, there's an article on that as well on the on the website. Yeah, I want to circle back, Jordan, you mentioned tools. You mentioned that it, you know, it comes down to the tools that you have in your kitchen. What are the must-haves when it comes to kind of building an amateur cannabis kitchen? You know, so it's funny. The blender is number one, a very good blender that can get, you know, your RPMs up pretty high. I do have an immersion blender that I use, but which is just, you know, the the stick that with the blade on the end that you can submerge into a pot or whatever the case may be. And you can just sort of, you know, blend it using this immersion blender. The problem is, is that the immersion blender, it doesn't create that same sort of level of emulsification as a proper blender. And plus, because it doesn't get the the RPMs as high or the RPMs don't get as high, Mm -hmm. it's still, there's some fibers left. It's not as smooth texturally. So when you're creating these emulsifications, these sauces, these desserts, these chocolate bases, these ice cream bases, you want texturally to be very smooth. So I think number one is a really, really good blender. Then measuring cups. I mean, you know, measuring spoons. It's it's really as simple as that. And I always have a dropper in milliliters so that I know per milliliter how much cannabis I'm putting in. Really good tips. And I think a good blender is a great kitchen tool, whether you're cooking with cannabis or not. But I do totally agree. This is this adds a great tip as to just something the average person, you know, if they're looking to make a, a Christmas upgrade or whatnot, then then they can lean towards that. So Perfect. What about a favorite recipe? Do you have something that you love? Is this through blueberries that you were sharing with us? I mean, one of my, you know, my signature, my new book is coming out 420. That's the plan. And so one of the signatures in that book is my fruit leather, which is essentially the same recipe as creating the the blueberry puree for the ice cream mixture. But I pour it out on a a parchment paper lined baking sheet and dehydrate it you know, at 95 degrees for 20 hours or put it in the oven at 200 degrees Fahrenheit for two hours. But it creates incredible fruit leather. I know you don't love the name, but, you know, fruit rollups, <laughs> that's, that sort of thing. But, you know, it's, it's dehydrated fruit. And for me, where I love to eat my cannabis, it really is such a, you know, on the go type of food stuff for me because it can sit shelf stable for truly years and years and years there's no moisture there's there's no nothing in it so my fruit leather number one far and away oh man i'm gonna have to try it you know jordan's referencing as some of you may know we're on social media that's how we got connected to jordan and everyone was was rocking the the fruit leather and i had to come out and say i'm like i don't know you know like processed animal hide fruit made, made out of fruit i don't know what does this mean? Everyone was rocking the fruit leather. Like everyone was like, oh, this looks so great. And I was like, it looks ah. good, but we could consider a new name. I don't know if you had growing up, we had roll-ups. These little That's, like exactly. leather guys that we had in our, our play lunch. That's what we called it in Australia. Is that like a school lunch? You can call Something it like that. Drink. I don't know. It's the one you do at like 10 or 11 in the morning. Play lunch. I love know. those. It's very weird. 
love them. I mean, honestly, that and like jujubes or wine gums, those sort of textures, I love chewing on them. Like I loved fruit roll ups growing up. And I'll be honest. So with the fruit leather, like it's so experiential and that's why I love it so much, right? So if you think about your regular experience with a gummy, for example, you open up the package and you can pop the gummy, but tearing the leather away from the paper on the back is so reminiscent, you know, Alana, so of exactly what you just outlined. It's yeah. so awesome. You know, it always puts a smile on my face, just tearing those apart from one another. Yeah, I totally get that. So I got to ask, you know, I have been known to say things like, why don't you people just smoke a joint and order a pizza like a normal person? And <laughs> Jordan's <laughs> nodding. He's like, yeah, yeah, I know you people. You joint and pizza people. He's like, I, you question- actually said that to me before is what he just said. <laughs> <laughs> Probably, yeah. But I guess my question is, you know, does it matter what different foods? We talked about sugar and sugars and fats beforehand, but does it matter what different food you're ingesting the cannabis with, or is it just the simple fact of like the oral ingestion method? So for me, and I, you know, and I'll always defer to, I, I always stay in my lane, but I can tell you based on experience, because the cannabinoids are already in a fat, they're already there. That's what they've bonded to, right? No matter what's, no matter what I'm using, they're already in that fat. So once I distribute that fat, evenly, equally in creating that homogenous mixture we've talked about, then no, because, you know, they're already in the fruit leather. But I will say, when I eat my brownies, for example, and I love my brownies, there's avocado and coconut oil and cacao and maple syrup, but really good fats in there. If I serve someone who typically eats 50 milligrams, a three or four milligram brownie, filled with my, my avocado and good fats, they get high. They absolutely feel it. So I will answer you from an experiential standpoint, and I'd love to hear Cody's answer. But yes, it does to an extent. Because the fat's already there, I can get away with it and create fruit roll-ups. But it does make a difference when I'm pairing that cannabis with other good fats. It does. Yeah, I mean, it's, okay, it's so an Cody's interesting been concept. Cody's making squinting faces. <laughs> I mean, look, I'm a pharmacologist, right? And and anything that would suggest tenfold difference in potency would make me a little bit skeptical. I can get behind the idea that delivering cannabinoids in this format, the brownie format, can definitely increase bioavailability. That's that's well established. It also increases duration of the response to cannabis, even compared to like an edible, a gummy type of a higher dose. But, you know, your range is skeptical. But there's a lot going on here that's very complex about how the body processes fats, how it uptakes them, and then where it sends them, whether it burns them for energy right away, or whether it sends it through the system to the liver for storage and all sorts of other stuff. So extremely complex stuff. And you know, uh, we need to learn more. These studies are still just barely being done into cannabis and bioavailability. And what we know so far has mostly been based on drug studies spraying, you know, Sativex into people's mouths, you know, for these MS studies around the world. So we have a long way to go before we can make those claims. But certainly, I can see how you could get more potency out of delivering cannabis with this nice, natural fat that is very bioavailable. There's my squint. That's why I was squinting. 
All right. Thank you for clarifying. Um, <laughs> let's go on to talk a little bit about consumption lounges and cannabis restaurants and like the the kind of new frontier that is ahead of us. Jordan, how does this, how do you kind of plan on getting in on the game, if at all, or how does it change the space for you? I had, I've said many times that I will not own a restaurant. I'm done. I can't do that anymore. But, and this is the but, but when cannabis comes online, I'm in. Yesterday, I received a phone call. Someone you know, very well known is working on something. And would I consider? And of course, the answer is yes, of course. But we have a long way to go. And so education is at the forefront of getting us to where we need to go. I think that consumption lounges are huge. I think they're a step in the right direction. I think there needs to be Again, I, I will say till I'm blue in the face that there needs to be good education out there so that we can continue just like we do with the smart serve and we're, and we're you know, creating a safer environment for bartenders. How do we create that same environment for people so that they don't green out, so they don't consume too much cannabis, so that we create that safe environment, right? There needs to be that type of certification and education available for those out there. So I think there's a top down and bottom up approach here. Creativity, creatively, it's a no-brainer, and I can see it, and I can also see the evolution of it as I've discussed it. I think that if you consider an infusing station, if you can sort of conceptualize this, you know, people can take it by all means. I hope more and more people do. But I see that the evolution being that there's a dispensary next door to a consumption lounge. You can probably, and again, I'm just talking about step one. You can go next door, buy your cannabis, bring it here, give it to me behind the counter. I will watch you infuse or you will watch me infuse. And that's sort of what it is. Maybe that evolves to buying the cannabis, bringing it to the chef and they infuse it. Whatever the case may be, this is mainstream. It's going to continue becoming more mainstream. Janet Zuccarello just opened up. Uh, Gusto Green in LA. Now they're not serving as to the best of my knowledge, they're not serving cannabis right now, but their intention is to serve cannabis would be my guess. So this is coming. People are talking about it. We're talking about it here. I can tell you that there's some really exciting things that you should keep your ear to the ground for. Well, now that we're so that we're so well connected, I'll share with you at some point, but there's some really exciting news in Canada from a hospitality, from a from a catering cannabis standpoint that are that's you know going to be released in the next little while, which again starts this yep. evolution towards full consumption, five-star restaurant. Well, that's and that lines up with really one of the core values of the Kenigma, which is destigmatization and normalization, right? We want to bridge the gap with knowledge, understanding of you know these emulsions and and you know the the ins and outs of all of these issues. So I, I completely agree. This is the next step. I'm glad to hear Canada's making a move. West Hollywood here in Southern California is making a big push to become this new go-to place for these sort of consumption lounges. And I really look forward to the creativity that the cannabis industry is so well known for, you know, finding its way into these experiences because Lord knows they're going to make experiences out of this, these, the whole idea, what's your favorite thing that you've ever done on weed? Like this, this sort of joke that can now actually be brought to fruition. So I think it's a really exciting time for cannabis. Yeah, definitely. I couldn't agree more. And I can't wait to try one of your infused 
anything. All your compotes and your healthful recipes got me hungry. I'm, I'm thinking about what I have in the house, and I'm like, I think I just have sugar cereal. <laughs> <laughs> Throw it For out. The challenge is that most people don't appreciate that the future of food is not sweet. You know, the future of cannabis food mm. stuff, it's not sweet. It's savory. You know, we're talking about buying Tetri packs or shelf stable, you know, tomato soups and teas. And, you know, it's frustrating here in Canada. And I can't speak to it today. But when I was doing my research, I couldn't even purchase teas in Ontario, cannabis teas, void of refined sugar. So, you know, for me, wow. it's... There's going to be two steps, one step towards savory food stuff and the other towards, which I believe we're already sort of motioning this way is towards health and wellness. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's the cannabis in general is finding itself smack bang in the middle of that health and wellness space across the board, not just in terms of edibles. And if you look at the industry today, certainly there's part of the industry, particularly the CBD market, and then this sort of uh, adult use market has really leaned towards THC. And I think we're going to find a, a confluence where these these all sort of come and blend together. And cannabis kind of leaves this idea of being bifurcated into into these two market segments. But anyway, middle yeah, the, the confluence. I love it. That's it. All right. Well, Jordan, thank you so much for your time today. It's always a pleasure speaking with you and very much looking forward to your relatives picking you up from the airport and bringing you straight to the Kenigma offices. We'll see if we can get you to come and join Cody when we make this big party happen. We got to make a Kenigma apron for Jordan, like with Buddy yes! on the apron. A Buddy apron. Okay, we're going to do it. <laughs> All right, we're doing it. I love it. Listen, I, I have to tell you, and, and I can't wait to have you on my show, but so I can ask you all my down and dirty questions. But I have to tell you and pay you both an incredible compliment that you know, with all of the content that's out there today, Enigma does one of the best jobs, if not the best job, curating really informative content. And it's really well done. And I told you both offline that the, the experience on your platform is phenomenal. So congrats on what you're building and continuing to build. It's really well done. Oh, thank Very you so kind much. Words. Thank you so much. Jordan, Thanks where for can having our me. listeners find you if, if they want to get in touch with you or kind of learn more about what you're doing? Yeah, everywhere. Chef Jordan Wagman on social media. Please follow, subscribe, and like to In the Weeds, which is a Food First podcast, which, you know, these two rock stars will be on in the next couple of weeks. But yeah, Chef Jordan Wagman anywhere and everywhere. Awesome. Looking forward to it. Thanks, Jordan. We'll Thank see you, you in the weeds, Jordan. In the weeds. <laughs> All right, bye, buddy. All right, enough puns. Goodbye. <laughs> Never <laughs> enough puns. <laughs>so for our ACES segment today, we've got something a little bit different. I have here with me William Dolphin, who has been involved with ASA since the beginning, kind of working on a number of different things through the years, focused around legal cases, policy and research. And currently you might recognize William's name from the monthly newsletter that ASA puts out every month, obviously, because it's a monthly newsletter. Thanks for joining me here today, William. Thanks for having me. Yeah, sure. So William was actually just telling me before we started recording about some interesting work that he's been involved in on this intersection of cannabis and mental health. So we decided to dedicate our segment this week to kind of unpacking this super important and I think really misunderstood topic. Why don't you uh, jump straight into it, William? 
Yeah, thanks. It has been really interesting digging a little further into this. The intersection of mental health and cannabis use is super important. And it is an area where there is some of the most dramatic difference between what doctors say about cannabis and what people who use cannabis experience with it. I became interested in this because of research that my partner, Michelle Newhart, and I did in Colorado with the patient experience there and folks reporting that they were using cannabis to manage mental health. And in my years with ASA, I've heard other folks report that as well. And as I began investigating a little bit further, I discovered just how radically different the views of the psychiatric profession are about cannabis use and patients. You know, worldwide, Mental health management is one of the top three reasons that people use cannabis medicinally. But almost all psychiatrists will tell you that if you've got any kind of mental health issue, you shouldn't use it. And even if you don't, you're risking mental health problems if you do, including a risk of psychosis. And this has been getting a lot of attention in the press over the last several years. There's been an explosion in the scientific literature. The number of articles concerned with psychosis and cannabis have just skyrocketed over the last 20 years. And it's not that we've come to any sort of new discoveries about it. You know, the one thing that it really correlates to is the spread of legal access and the increased concerns on the side of the medical community about what that might entail. Yeah, it's so interesting that you say this because I hear this echoed from specialties across the board of, you know, often in the psychiatric space, but also neurologists. I hear this a lot that they started treating before they had any kind of training in, in cannabis and they saw cannabis use as a comorbidity. They saw, you know, I've heard this through physicians who are treating autism spectrum disorder, who are treating Tourette's, actually some fascinating research from, I'm sure you're aware of her work, uh, Dr. Kirsten Muller-Val in Germany, who realized that huge percentages of her patients were actually self-medicating with cannabis. And when she was able to kind of look at it through the lens of understanding what her patients or rather kind of learning from her patients rather than looking to teach her patients, she saw that this was actually, you know, medication that she could get involved in and help make the treatment more effective rather than simply looking at it as a second disease or a second indication that was presenting. Right. Or, or a causal factor, right? Mm, I mean, and right, that's what yeah. we see with cannabis on the psychiatry side, you know, because one of the things that is super interesting on this comorbidity question is that folks with psychiatric disorders, and to be clear, you know, schizophrenia is the one that gets all the attention, right? I mean, right. psychiatry has always been super concerned with it. It's, you know, long history around that, but it's not even clear that they understand what it is. There's no clear sense of how it comes to be in people, but people with a diagnosis of schizophrenia are way more likely to be pretty serious users of cannabis, right? And so that's been used to say, well, look, you know, there's this linkage. And then the other thing they point to is, well, you know, on the self-medication thing, because that's been a theory out there. They say, well, it can't be that. Because if you look, the cannabis use precedes the diagnosis of schizophrenia hmm. almost always. And so that time thing tells us that that caused the other. Well, mm, yeah. the problem with yeah, that is that the symptoms, I suppose, that's the question. Right. You reached a threshold of diagnosis, but that didn't mean that you were perfectly fine before that. Right? right. There's a prodromal syndrome where you're beginning to feel funny, 
feel off. And cannabis is enormously helpful with what they call the negative symptoms of schizophrenia, the anxiety, mm-hmm. the depression. Again, the top reasons people use it to manage mental health. And right. one of the things that's super interesting, as they've gotten a little bit farther, there have been a couple of case studies where they had intractable patients, right? Not responding, refractory, they call it, not responding mm-hmm. to any kind of medication institutionalized, non-functional. But these were folks who reported that they had used a lot of cannabis before they were institutionalized and they found that it helped their symptoms. So some guys in New York, psychiatrists in New York said, well, let's try it in a controlled fashion. And in this case study of four individuals, guess what? Controlled doses of THC reduced all their symptoms to the degree that they were able to go back and live normal lives, right? Right. So it's not at all clear what's going on with this. And some of the really interesting sort of basic biological research about schizophrenia shows that there are significant differences in endocannabinoid system functioning in people with schizophrenia. There's a lot more anandamide in the cerebral spinal fluid of folks with schizophrenia. So there are some biological mechanisms involved. Again, we don't understand what schizophrenia even is or how it comes to be or what's happening, but there's there's some exciting indications that the ECS may be a therapeutic target. Yeah, this is so much more research is needed here. I, I want to kind of circle back. I think there's there's something really important that you said there that with the controlled doses of THC, these four subjects, which is of course not enough subjects in the study, no. but these four subjects, you know, were able to kind of return to normal functioning. The controlled doses, I suppose, is is really the point here that, you know, without the the education and the research, I think that it's very difficult to self-medicate, especially if you're in a situation where you're buying cannabis on the black market and you have no idea what you're buying. The research look into specifically what types of cannabis and what doses are most effective for these conditions? No. No, no, not at all, right? And and yes, this is a critical factor. So much of the research that we have is so broad and poorly defined. You know, people, you know, again, population-wide studies where they're analyzing thousands and thousands of individuals who merely answered, yes, I used cannabis, right? right? No idea what, no idea how much. There are some attempts to parse how quote unquote, heavy a user they are, but the measures are so broad and ill-defined that they're effectively meaningless. And and likewise, you know, the, the differences in dosing we know. I mean, there are paradoxical of dose-dependent effects. One dose right. may relieve anxiety. A higher dose may induce anxiety of exactly the same substance, right? And cannabis is not alone in that. But it's particularly marked with that. So we definitely need more careful research on exactly what might help yeah. with with folks. And, you know, there are some exciting things being done on the genetic side of things, right, where we're trying to analyze genomes of plants and people and figure out how they might match up. Right. Well, definitely waiting with bated breath on that, but I'm assuming it's going to be a few years at least (laughs) until we have any real takeaways there. Well, this is just a quick one at the end of our episode, but as we were saying before we started recording, I would love to get you on the podcast to kind of pull this topic apart, you know, in more depth. So we'll definitely set that up. Any kind of, you know, real takeaways here from what you've been finding out apart from, you know, the standard more research is needed that we can leave off with today? 
Well, yeah. I mean, I think that part of what medical professionals struggle with is that they're operating within a harm paradigm. You know, cannabis mm. use is not just a comorbidity, it's a harmful behavior. And you want to, everything is focused on trying to help people not do it versus any kind of understanding of how it might actually be helpful for people. You know, analysis of research funding in the United States finds, you know, 20 times more money spent on identifying harms than identifying anything useful. And we still have almost no medical training available to doctors on the potential for cannabinoid medicines or even the endocannabinoid system. So that's a, a huge lift that we need to accomplish before we can really talk about fully integrating this. Yeah, definitely. Education keeps coming down to education, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. All right. Well, thanks so much for this. And we're going to talk again soon. Okay, great. Thanks, Elaine. Bye. All right. Thanks. I'm Alana Goldberg. This episode of the Cannabis Enigma podcast was executive produced by myself with production assistance from Dr. Cody Peterson and Ed Weissman and edited by our friends at We Edit Podcasts. If you enjoyed the episode, feel free to like, rate and share. It helps other people find the podcast and it's really nice for us as well.